0: Welcome to The Road to Unistoten, a documentary produced at CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Hi, I'm Liz MacArthur. In July 2014, I got on a converted school bus with a group of activists to travel 1200 kilometers from Victoria, BC, to the Unistoten pipeline blockade in northern BC, near Houston. These are the interviews and sounds of the journey. Arno Kopecky is the author of The Oilman in the Sea, a recently released book focusing on the proposed supertanker route along the BC coast. I spoke with Arno about his thoughts on the Unistoten camp and the proposed overland routes of the pipelines.
1: In my book, I was looking almost exclusively at the marine aspect of of the Northern Gateway project. Uh, So, you know, I I did look a little bit at the pipeline, but to me, the uh, the the prospect of oil tankers was by far the most threatening aspect of this. And so, with that in mind, there was sort of two foundational documents of the whole critique of Enbridge's marine plan, and, and that is Enbridge's marine safety plan and the quantitative risk assessment that Enbridge hired a private consultant to do, so to basically analyze their safety plan and say, well, is this safe or is it not, and, you know, to put numbers by it. So.
0: To help him dissect the materials in the documents, he consulted with marine experts. He says he was surprised by the discrepancies he found between what the safety reports indicated and the conflicting information his experts offered him.
1: Yeah, I was. I mean, I guess I came into it with a bit of suspicion in the first place, but then uh, just how glaringly blatant some of the half-truths and fudgeries were. It was, was pretty shocking. I mean, just to give you an example, like one example, there's so many. Uh, Enbridge did not include the coming traffic in liquefied natural gas tankers that is going to be coming down the exact same route as the oil tankers. So there's going to be, a, you know, these are narrow, confined waters that we're talking about, several hundred kilometers out of Kitimat, past Haida Gwaii, to Hecate Strait, and um, and Enbridge is adding 225 minimum oil tankers to these waters. Um, and nowhere in their, in their safety plan did they address the fact that, in addition to, be, to their 225 tankers, there's going to be at least 400 uh, more tankers carrying liquefied natural gas. And increased traffic in confined channels is a huge factor in probabilities of an accident. And so they didn't even... No, nobody mentioned that. That just was totally ignored. Uh, and so that's one example. Other examples include things like uh, they looked at wave height, average wave heights, and average wind speeds uh, throughout the route to to you know put a number on what the risks are here. And Enbridge basically by using statistical averages and, and means, they factored out the absolute maximums that occur from time to time. Not very often, but of course it's these once in every few years' events that are are the things that are the most alarming. So what Enbridge found was that the maximum wave height that their oil tankers would be dealing with was about uh, six to eight meters, when in fact in Hecate Strait, waves up to 22 meters have been found. And they found that maximum wind speeds would be about 100 kilometers, when in fact wind speeds in excess of 200 kilometers have been found. So they literally cut in half the maximum wind and wave figures that they would be dealing with. And those are just three, I mean, I could really just go on and on and on. It it's kind of bewildering that that this kind of a plan would be approved by our, you know, Transport Canada and various other departments um, in the federal government approved it. Which was which struck me as almost literally crazy and just you quickly get this sense of, of people who are in office towers in Calgary and Ottawa and cities who don't really have any uh, navigational experience of their own, who don't understand, uh, you know, marine conditions. I spoke to Master Mariners. I spoke to all kinds of people who have actual condition on the ocean, uh, sorry, actual experience, you know, navigating the oceans, decades of it. And they were all sort of aghast at the fact that that these plans had been come up with and put in place, and it was just blatantly assumed that day in, day out for you know, 30 to 50 years, these oil tankers could just cruise through this area and, and marry an accident. Uh, it
0: was crazy. And these discrepancies pointed to a larger failure within the system set up to evaluate environmental risk for large energy projects in Canada.
1: You know, Northern Gateway is just one example, in my opinion, particularly egregious and, and, and threatening, but if you look at this culture that is national and, and how we approve these big industrial projects and of course in british columbia a few weeks ago we had the mount Polley mine disaster where this huge tailings pond uh, containment wall collapsed and and you had this you know this disaster of epic proportions and it's a very similar thing where uh... you know you had this environmental safety assessment that was just sort of done and blithely assumed to be to be fine and I, you know one of the interesting things here is, is, is how environmental assessments are conducted in, in our country and it, it is you know I think most people in the public because you know people just don't have time to look into this themselves so they think well we have these companies who are independent and they're conducting these environmental assessments and so if they say you know they know what they're doing they're professional, they've got PhDs if they say this is safe then that's the yardstick by which we measure that it's safe but in fact, a lot of these environmental assessment companies, and I would argue that the same applied to the company that did the environmental, sorry, the quantitative risk assessment for Enbridge Northern Gateway. Uh, these companies are—it's a very slippery slope. You know, they're paid directly by the proponent, and so in a way, they're working for the proponent. And this idea of independence is is quite shaky because. You know, and I've spoken to a lot of people who work in the environmental consulting industry, and many of them are very critical of the fact that if you say no to a project more than one or two times, quickly your company will be blacklisted, and you won't get any future contracts to carry out environmental consultants consulting. So your job is really to make sure that this project goes forward and perhaps mitigate it to the best possible degree. But never is, and the bigger the project, the more pressure, of course, to approve it. And so this idea that we could that saying no to the project in its entirety is an option simply kind of disappears. And what happens instead is that okay, we're gonna say yes to this project and let's just find out how we can minimize the damage. But, you know, of course in some of these cases I think there's a very strong case to be made that no matter how much you minimize the risk, it's still not enough. Like the risk, even the minimal risk is just too great given the given what's at stake. And, uh, and so that's what really came up for me in this was just seeing how this process, you know, you, you hide behind a bunch of numbers, the public sees, okay, well, uh, you know, the consultants have done their work, and then, and then, of course, you have these government departments kind of relying on, on that as well, and I think there's also a, a pretty strong problem of the politicization of, of various government departments where, uh, you know, Transport Canada, Environment Canada, a lot of these bureaucracies, uh, I suspect, it's you know, they're so opaque, it's hard to know exactly what's behind their decision-making, but, to, you know, none of them would grant me interviews for this book. I, uh, and I, not just for this book, but numerous magazine articles, i would tried to speak to representatives of Environment Canada, Transport Canada, uh, some of these, you know, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and ask them, you know, hey, all of these huge red flags that I saw, aren't they worrisome to you as well, or what is your... What am I missing that, that you're seeing that makes you think it's okay to ignore, you know, five times as much tanker traffic uh, as, as Enbridge assumes it's going to be? How is that okay? What, what do you know that I don't know? None of them would speak to me, uh, you know, that, that quickly the hand of the Harper government comes down and intervenes and says, sorry, we won't conduct give you an interview, but here's our blanket press release statement on the subject, which, of course, really says nothing. And then the only conclusion that you can really come to is that, well, this has been and that there are orders coming down from somewhere on high to approve this thing. And to me, that's really frightening.
0: Arno has experience examining mining in other areas of the world where Canadian resource extraction companies operate.
1: So I spent a year in Peru and Colombia back in 2009 and 10, looking at exactly this, looking at what uh, Canadian mining and oil companies were doing in the Amazon.
0: He says despite often blanket criticism, not all mining companies are bad.
1: There are many who are doing... Pretty good work, and and actually, in, in many cases, um, I mean, the, the simple answer—it's a very, you know—it's tempting to just say, "Well, we should get these all these mining companies out and let people do their own thing." When the truth is, actually, if you look at a lot of artisanal mining, so sort of small-scale, independent, mm-hmm. one guy uh, mining for gold uh, in the in the jungle, that stuff actually does tend to do way more environmental damage than some of these big. Companies that have the money and the resources to sort of contain some of the damage that that mining that inevitably comes along with mining. Uh, so the question is always: How well is this stuff regulated, and how well is the local community being in, involved, and 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 you know how how socially responsible is uh, the mine mining company or the oil company in question? Uh, and so that varies from case to case. Overall, you know, I don't think the 20th century was. You know, I don't think the industries were showering themselves in, in glory uh, with, with their behavior. I think they're improving rapidly, in part just because they have to, because these small communities, uh, whether they're indigenous or, or not, uh, now they have greater access to uh, communicate what's going on and to educate themselves about what's going on, thanks to social media and Internet and stuff. Like People are just not as isolated and, and ignorant as they were before. Uh, so I think more and more you have mining companies and oil companies and, and resource extractive companies having their feet be held to the fire, but I think there's still a huge way to go. Canada hosts uh, 60% of the world's mining companies on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So, And, you know, we obviously have a huge oil industry as well. So we're a, we're actually a major global player. We're Latin America's third biggest foreign investor because of this. And so I think it's especially incumbent on us to to really get these regulations in place, and one area that we failed there's this thing called corporate social responsibility out there, and so any big company, Enbridge, uh, you know, you name it, Talisman, uh, from Shell, any big any big resource extraction company, if you go to their website, you they'll have a, a link where you can click on to corporate social responsibility, and, they, and that's where they'll outline all the schools that they've built and the hospitals that they've built and how many locals and, and First Nations they're hiring and all this stuff. Uh, and the name kind of says it all, but unfortunately, corporate social social responsibility is entirely voluntary. And there was a movement afoot, especially a couple of years ago, there was a big drive to sort of codify this in law and 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 legally uh, require companies to carry out certain mandates with corporate social responsibility. And that would include, you know, uh, talking to the consulting with local communities and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, industry was able to uh, repel that advance, and and make sure that corporate social responsibility, responsibility stays voluntary instead of becoming mandatory. And so again, you just have power in the hands of the corporations, and they can do as much or as little as they like. And this kind of stuff tends to be reinforced by free trade agreements that, that Canada and other countries have signed with Peru and Colombia and some of these other places where huge amounts of minerals and oil are waiting for our, our companies.
0: In August 2014, a tailings pond at the Mount Polley Mine in BC was breached and liquid from the operation flooded the Hazeltine Creek. Biologist Alexandra Morton and indigenous people from the area reported their environmental concerns with the tailings pond breach. Among other things, they reported an unidentified blue film on the nearby lake that stings the skin. Arno says he can see parallels between the Mount Pauly mining disaster and problems with mining in areas of Latin America that have long been criticized.
1: In a way, they almost started elsewhere in these places where, I mean, I went, I was down in Peru and Colombia well before I was looking at Northern Gateway. And so, in, for me, in many ways, writing about Northern Gateway for the Man on the Sea was a Canadian sequel to what I had seen in Latin America. and the story of, of sort of big corporations coming in with government support onto indigenous land and extracting resources uh, at whim with very little environmental oversight. You know, it seemed almost, you know, there's this part of you that says, well, of course, that's something that would happen in a in third world country. And then I came home and suddenly saw the exact same story unfolding here in Canada, in my own country, my own backyard on the West Coast. And it just really felt Like, wow, our chickens have really come home to roost. Like, this is not something that just happens out there. You know, this is not something that our companies do to other countries. This is something that we're doing to ourselves.
0: However, he remains hopeful about the resurgence of Indigenous activism around protection of the environment in B.C.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, that's actually sort of a hopeful corollary to this whole story, is that First Nations are, uh, especially perhaps in B.C., uh, and especially on the West Coast, at least that's where I can speak to, uh, First Nations really do seem to be getting engaged, and there's almost a renaissance movement taking place where, you know, you have all these young leaders and, and elders and, and people of all ages and generations who are getting hugely involved and are really astonishingly aware of, of their rights and, and legal powers uh, to a much greater degree than ever before. And and this uh, this sort of the the old way of doing things throughout the 20th century where corporations and government could just blaze in and and do whatever they wanted and, and, you know, maybe, you know, have these consultations and quotation marks where they just basically tell the community what they're going to do and maybe share a little tiny portion of the profits. Those those days are, I think, rapidly coming to an end. Uh, There was the recent Chilcotin decision, uh, which awarded Aboriginal title to the Chilcotin nation, in D.C., and and that was, you know, again, a recent landmark decision. There's just been a string of of, of huge court battles uh, that First Nations are winning when it comes to resource development on, on First Nations land. And so I think, it's, to me, it's actually a really hopeful sign that First Nations are starting to know their rights, assert their rights, win these legal battles. And I actually think, excuse me, I think Northern Gateway will, will be another positive example in this, Regard, I, I think it's you know the betting money is, is really against Northern Gateway ever coming to fruition. Uh, so that you know, assuming that, let's say that's true, that's a battle won and and the war goes on. Uh, so it's and it's of course a little too early to to celebrate, but I think it's fair to say overall that First Nations are really asserting their their rights, and I think that's a wonderful thing. And and you know, ironically, it it sometimes it takes this this strong common enemy like enbridge and the political forces supporting Enbridge to, to really unite first nations and, and to sort of galvanize them into action and and not just first nations I should add but you know environmental communities and and sort of Canada's environmental ethos I think has really been pricked by a lot of the stuff that's been going on with Bill C-38 and this evisceration of our of our national environmental regulatory structure and and this sort of clearinghouse that's going on now mm-hmm. under the Harper government uh, to, you know, basically make our resources more accessible to corporations and then we can sell them to the highest or lowest bidder abroad, you know, without upgrading anything, without worrying about the state of our rivers and oceans and, and soils. Uh, you know, there's all this terrifying stuff happening, but in response to that, I think there's a lot of really heroic and exciting new, uh, these new alliances are happening and, and these, new, these new movements While I got you on the line, quickly, I just wanted to ask you uh, what, like how long you have been in the building
0: for and what, your, uh, what you saw up there, what you thought of it. Oh, yeah. Um, I went up for a week for the action camp and so I went on this, on the Social Coast action bus. So my friend, uh, Eric, has this group in Victoria called Social Coast and he owns a school bus. Well, Social Coast owns a school bus. And uh, we drove up there on that. Um, and uh, he sort of convinced me to go this year. It was an incredible trip, actually. Thanks for listening to The Road to Unistoten. This documentary was made possible with support from CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Music comes from Tanya Tagak and Running Point. To find out more about the camp, visit UnistotenCamp.com. To find out more about CFUV, visit cfuv.uvic.ca.